This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. President Donald Trump promises to get coal miners back to work. But travel to Colorado's North Fork Valley and you see a region steeped in coal history that's looking for a new path. Coming up in a few minutes, one picture of what that path might look like. First, this report from CPR's Grace Hood, who's on the energy beat. In the tiny mountain town of Somerset, America's move away from coal isn't some abstract concept. It's visible. Uh, Actually, it's kind of made the view a a little bit nicer, to be quite truthful. Resident Rocky Dutton is talking about a large coal silo that was demolished in 2016, years after the Elk Creek mine closed. Last year, Bowie Number 2 mine closed, laying off about 100 workers. Lately, it seems that more retirees like Dutton live in this historic coal community than miners. I like it here. I bought this place with the idea that this was kind of my my last place. This region used to be a mining powerhouse with 950 jobs in 2010. Now there are just 220. Drive up the road from Somerset to West Elk Mine, and you find the last mine standing in the area. You can see coal silos and a train loading facility from the road. Near the main office, there's a long conveyor belt that stretches down the mountain. This is the main conveyor that that brings all the coal out of the mine. Kathy Welt is an environmental engineer at West Elk. She's worked in the industry for 29 years. The mine has been recognized by state and industry leaders for safety and environmental projects. But it hasn't been enough. With the, uh, I'll just call them political issues, with the burning of coal and power plants, we lost all of our long-term contracts, all of them. A large utility in the eastern U.S. didn't renew its long-term contract in 2014. Last year, West Elk's parent company, Archcoal, worked through bankruptcy proceedings. Recently, President Donald Trump lifted a moratorium on new federal coal leases. And he took a step to lift emission standards on coal-fired power plants. Walt says the moves were met with cautious optimism here in the North Fork Valley. And we're hopeful that things will pick up for us, but we, we don't expect it's going to go back to the way it was. West Elk continues to fill shorter-term contracts. Meantime, it faces pressure from environmental groups. The mine wants to expand. Groups like Wild Earth Guardians say they'll challenge those plans in court. Peonia is the closest town with restaurants and stores. Charles Stewart is the mayor here. He points out a few empty storefronts on Main Street, casualties of the coal decline. Stewart says the town is losing its middle class. Uh, They're not just miners. Uh, They are EMTs. They're volunteer firefighters. We have seen folks leave that really are important to the day-to-day operation of the town. Stewart now is on a mission to stop the bleeding. He wants to keep West Elk Mine open and shepherd the town through an economic transition. There's hope in the North Fork Valley that the bottom has already dropped out for coal. That makes room for the philosophical questions that come with rebuilding. What do Main Streets look like in the future when I can get anything I need at a very low price delivered to me within a day or two? 
Stewart says this is just one of the challenges facing this rural economy. He says the transition will require flexibility, a characteristic seen in former miners like Scott Burns. He left Elk Creek when the mine closed in late 2013. It forced me to make a decision. You're either going to stay in this and go work out of town because of the economic climate or find something different. Burns went from mine supervisor to work in the Delta County School District. Two years from now, I may be doing something else. But I always call it the perfect old man job. You know, I'm, I'm a retired coal miner moonlighting as, as a custodian. Miners who decide to stay in the region don't find easy choices. They face job retraining, working in organic agriculture, or doing broadband installation. All areas of the economy, Delta County leaders hope to supercharge in the coming years. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Later this week, Grace will have more on how leaders in the North Fork Valley plan to create more economic opportunity given the coal mines shuttering. One option they want to pursue? Capturing a gas that escapes from defunct mines and turning it into electricity. In Delta and Gunnison counties, commissioners like Jonathan Hauk are excited to harness methane that would otherwise go into the atmosphere. When we're able to capture that and put it to its best beneficial use, I see it as a way to win economically, a way to win environmentally. And this is already happening at the Elk Creek Mine, often called the Oxbow Mine, after the company that owns it. Tom Vessels built this system. Tom, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Thank you, Ryan. Your Denver company is called Vessels Coal Gas. You have a long career in oil and gas, and uh, this company tries to convert waste methane into something marketable, like electricity. How did that idea of turning it into power come to you? Well, I uh, was involved in the late 90s in the, with a company in the United Kingdom that was recovering a waste methane from the hundreds of abandoned closed coal mines they had in the UK. Ah, and you thought this idea could work in the United States. Was it uh, a bit revolutionary on our soil at that time? Uh, over here, yes. Over here, yes. I should say that methane is a naturally occurring a sort of phenomenon from coal seams and surrounding rocks during coal mining. And after a coal mine is shut down, it continues to off-gas. So uh, your plant, which uses methane from the Elk Creek mine, generates electricity for about 1,600 homes. That's according to the utility that buys the power from your plant. So it's small scale, but when it got started about five years ago, uh, was it the first of its kind in the Western United States? First of the kind in the Western United States, and, and probably... Exactly. You know, if you were to look at it as a model, you probably wouldn't see it east of the Mississippi either. I see. Okay. Are you doing this elsewhere right now outside uh, Colorado? Our first electric generation project was in Pennsylvania, in, in Northern Appalachia. Okay. Uh, in Colorado, Aspen Skiing Company ponied up the money to build this power plant, and a utility called Holy Cross Energy buys the electricity. Uh, you worked with an energy analyst, an environmentalist, the late Randy Udall, related to the former senator in Colorado. He gets a lot of credit for making this project work. In layman's terms, how do you capture the methane and then get it to the electrical generation plant? <clears throat> well, uh, methane is a very light molecule, so it always wants to float up to least pressure being the atmosphere. So we have to find uh, the best place we can and... Uh, put a compressor on and suck 
so that we create an area that's lower pressure than the atmosphere. Okay. So over time, you, you attract the methane to that location. And how long is that distance? How great is that distance? Oh, methane uh, has been measured to come from miles away to a, a facility like ours. Okay. And did it require a lot of new innovation to make that happen, or did you simply bring over that technology from across the pond? It, it was all off-the-shelf technology. Off-the-shelf technology. Um, could you do the same thing with the methane that's released in oil and gas drilling or in agriculture? In agriculture, actually, it's done quite a bit. And uh, there's, uh, there's probably dozens. There may be over 100 projects like this in agriculture. In uh, the natural gas oil industry, it's probably done on larger scale, not so much on small scale because there's not the economy. Okay. And what would you say are the environmental benefits of converting methane from coal mines and I suppose other industries you've said into electricity? Well, they're, they're pretty huge. The uh, uh, cutting-edge scientific research considers that methane is 100 times the global warming potential of carbon dioxide. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand that as a greenhouse gas, methane is incredibly potent. Yes. And so capturing it uh, means that a lot of that does not go into the atmosphere. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, how valuable would you say methane is in and of itself? That is, could it be used in other ways simply than a generating power? Well, well it is valuable. It can be used. Uh, but you have to have enough quantity. You have to have scale. So the gas prices today, natural gas prices, are relatively low compared to where they've been historically. So you'd have to compensate for that low price by having a lot of it. Okay. And what would you say is off-gassed from old mines? Put that into some perspective for us, the amount. Well, we um, collect close to a thousand, a million uh, cubic feet a day to generate electricity. And there's probably um, five or six times that that we could generate electricity with from that mine that uh, we don't have a market for, so we burn it and create a carbon offset to sell to the California cap-and-trade system. So that's where most of our business interest is right now is the California cap-and-trade system. Oh, interesting. So it's not just a question of harnessing its power at your plant. You've seen this other market, and that is uh, cap-and-trade in, in right. California. Uh, could that market grow, that cap-and-trade market, do you think? Here in Colorado? Well, I suppose anywhere in the globe, right? That wouldn't have to be on U.S. soil, would it? No. Okay. Uh, the Elk Creek mine closed in just the last few years. How long will it keep off-gassing methane that can be used for electricity? You know, you have to look at the, the return on investment and how long it will be. Well, using other mines and other parts of the world as an analog, I'd say it will be uh, emitting for decades at an ever-decreasing volume. Okay. And that means what? That eventually a plant would have to shut down, and what would that time horizon look like? Well, the, um, the project we do right now, the three megawatts for Holy Cross, will have more than enough methane. It's a 15-year contract. It's a 15-year power, power purchase agreement. And at the end of that 15 years, there will still be more than enough methane to satisfy 
if you were to keep generating that three megawatts, you'd still have plenty. Okay, so beyond the 15-year time horizon. Well, as we heard, some former coal-producing areas in Colorado want to explore whether they could get jobs and, as you've said, these environmental benefits by replicating your project. State lawmakers are also highlighting this technology. They've invited you to testify before an energy committee tomorrow at the state capitol. How realistic is it that this could be replicated, scaled up elsewhere? Oh, it is realistic, and I'd love to do it. And you'd love to do it. (laughs) What were the obstacles? Like, I wonder if there were pitfalls that you experienced that other communities could avoid. Well, I lost count of the number of times somebody said, how do you know it will work? Huh. And so, and that's after there's been hundreds of such facilities put in Germany, the United Kingdom, Australia, China. So I think the problem, we, we ran into every obstacle you can imagine just because there was no structure of, at any level, permits, contractual. Nobody had done it before, so we were breaking ground continuously. But now that ground is broken. Yes. And you think then the path will be easier for other communities? Yes. Okay. You mentioned the cap-and-trade market in California. I wonder how that side of your business compares to the size of your business generating power. Like, which is more lucrative for you? Oh, the cap-and-trade. The cap-and-trade. Yeah. That's the bread and butter, you would say, of vessels. Mm -hmm. Is it a better business idea, then, to build an electrical plant? Well, from a practical point of view of reducing greenhouse gas, yes. Uh Uh, Because it gets the job done. Uh, California Air Resources Board just wants to destroy greenhouse gas, period. They and I would, of course, agree the best way to do that is to get some use out of the waste energy. It is a waste energy. We're not using it. Um, But it's going to take a while, I think, for our whole socioeconomic political system to adjust uh, because you've got to change the way people think and do business. Coal still employs more than a 1,000 people in Colorado, according to the state labor department. How many jobs does building a plant like this, converting methane from coal plants, uh, coal mines, that is, into electricity, actually create? How many jobs? Well, during the construction phase, quite a bit. Um, I think probably while we were under construction, maybe had six to ten people there at any one time. Once it is in service... It is, um, with telecommunications and computer technology, it's it's a unattended uh, project. So maybe you have two people full-time someplace. Okay. So the idea that it would uh, wholly make up for lost coal jobs is not the case. There would be some jobs, but uh, I, I think what you're saying is that the environmental benefits are uh, pretty steady. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to say that uh, Gunnison County Commissioner um, that we talked to, Mr. Hauk, uh, acknowledged that it is not indeed a perfect solution for his community, uh, that it wouldn't employ the same number of people as coal. Uh, Tom, thanks so much for sharing this with us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Tom Vessels of uh, Denver's Vessels Coal Gas converts methane waste into marketable resources. And we talked about a project he designed to make electricity from it. Other Colorado communities hope to replicate that project. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Eric Weinmayer of Golden was the first blind man to summit Everest. This is radio traffic from when he arrived at the top. I can't believe it. We're on the top. I can't believe it. And we're getting out of here. Let's go.
That was in 2001. His latest adventure was closer to home, kayaking 277 miles of the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. His new book about the experience is called No Barriers. And Eric, welcome back to the program. Hi, Ryan. I want to start with how a blind man kayaks the Colorado. So describe the the kind of system you created that allowed you to do this and live to tell. (laughs) Well, I started kayaking at 40 years old. So I remember thinking, you know, Everest is supposed to prepare you for these things. I didn't feel very prepared because we had to create the systems for doing everything and staying safe. And I'm a big believer in systems. And so uh, we eventually discovered uh, my guide needed to be in back of me so he could see the scene and he could guide me with simple directions like hard left, hard right, charge, which means charge into that wave before it destroys you. And we use these radios uh, that we discovered eventually, waterproof Bluetooth radios that communicate in relative real time. We found a lot of the radios were like, you know, a half a second delay And that's an eternity in a rapid. So we had to find really fast, reliable communication and loud because rapids are hugely loud. Uh, They're, you know, could be separated from your guide by a 20-foot wave. Wow. Okay. So just for a clearer picture, these are one-person kayaks. So that is to say the person who is acting as your eyes and giving you those directions is in another vessel. Yeah, he's behind me. And in an ideal situation, there's actually somebody out picking the line in front. And uh, and so that would be a second guide. And uh, in a rapid, you have what's called the line. It's like the map through the rapid. And it's a very complex way to get through the rapid. And so... So that guy's out picking the line. The guy back is guiding me and maybe even a couple people down in the eddy at the bottom of the rapid to pick up the pieces in case somebody swims. You you must learn in these adventures how important it is to have a team. Yeah, a blind guy does not climb Everest alone. He doesn't kayak the Grand Canyon alone. And Mm -hmm. so I've had great teams. In fact, that's been the great fortune of my life to have really good friends, uh, many of them who here live in Colorado and helped me achieve all sorts of great things. You talked about avoiding the communication delay on the headset. Um, That has to be instantaneous. And so, too, does your reaction to the instructions you're getting. You know, I've had people say, oh, it's on your right, and I've accidentally looked left. That is to say, you had to develop really immediate reactions to information you were getting. Well, that was the great fear for me, honestly, of kayaking, was that in climbing you get the moment to slow down and, you know, reassess and say, you know what, maybe I'll take a moment here. But you can't do that. There are no brakes in kayaking. You charge into this rapid and you have to be aggressive. And I know, like in the next two minutes, I'm about to just confront massive chaos. And it's all depending on my guide uh, giving me a good command at the moment that he needs to. And then uh, my reaction to that If you're a a half a second off, if you're a foot to the left, a foot to the right, if your boat is pointed like 10 degrees too far to the left, now you're off the line and you're, it's, it's new, it's a new game. It's a new situation and you're in a scary place and, uh, it's a cascading result. It sounds overwhelming. It sounds terrifying, but I have to think that the very first time you got into a kayak was a unique experience. Tell us about that. Well, I was leading an or, uh, a group actually on the Grand Canyon. Uh, I have an organization called No Barriers, and we had this group of blind and sighted teenagers. And we were rafting, and we rafted half of the 
canyon and hiked out at Phantom Ranch. And um, on that trip, one of the kayaking guides, he was our safety guide, you know, there to get people if they fell in the river. His name is Harlan Tanny, and he's half human, half dolphin. And <laughs> he's amazing. And he was in a hard shell kayak, and he said, get into one of these rubber duckies, which are much more stable versions of kayaks, and go down the river, and and I'll blow a whistle in front of you. And that was my first experience in that kind of boat, uh, even though it was far different from a kayak. And I loved it. I was like, this is so different from climbing and the the understanding the language the lexicon of rivers is so incredibly different and as a blind person there's no way to understand it unless you just put yourself in the middle of it and so he had a whistle as an auditory cue for you ahead and you would follow that sound yeah and it turned out that that really ultimately didn't work very well because if he blows a whistle sometimes you know I'll head towards his sound and there might be a rock or a hole in the river between me and him So ultimately, we abandoned that technique, but that was how we started. Indeed, you describe yourself in the book as a mountain guy who knew nothing about rivers. So this truly was a new vocabulary for you. Uh, You began to go blind at age four because of a congenital condition. Today, you have a guide dog, a cane. Uh, You certainly can't use those on the river. Hmm. And I want to know what your level of fear is on the water. Um, yeah, because of the speed and because of, you know, the, the danger that exists even for sighted people. It was overwhelming. In fact, a lot of the book, you know, sprinkled throughout the book is this idea of fear that you never really overcome it, but you learn to manage it, hopefully through your preparation, through your team, through all your systems, through your mindset. Uh, and, but it was always there. And it, sometimes it nearly overwhelmed me. Uh, I got in over my head on one river I was training down in Mexico, these vortexes, they're whirlpools that swirl across the river. This one, these were nine feet deep. Like they would suck you down. They would rip you out of your kayak. They'd be so strong. They'd pull your shoes off your feet. They'd hold you down under the water. I got so overwhelmed by this. Uh, it was almost like, you know, I'm not minimizing anything, but I mean, it felt like trauma to me in a way. I could, I could hardly force myself to get back in my boat. So it was a great lesson for me on this idea of fear uh, and how, how you approach that in life and how do you sort of not allow fear to be a prison that keeps you on the sidelines, which it does for so many of us. I think that's a theme really in not just this adventure, but in so many of your others. Why did you choose the Colorado and specifically the stretch through the Grand Canyon? Well, one is, you know, Everest, for instance, is not the hardest mountain in the world, but it's iconic, you know, and it's part of history. And same thing with the Grand Canyon. Um, Powell was the first person to go down the river with his team. He was missing an arm. He was an arm amputee and Civil War hero. And it has so much history in America. It's so iconic. And I'm not doing these things to prove necessarily always that blind people can do this or that. That's shallow in a way. Um, But I wanted to experience life and understand rivers. Uh, And and when you're going down the Colorado, it's the gauntlet to some of the most iconic whitewater in North America. And you can also hear the canyon walls around you. They're they're thousands of feet tall. Blind people use something called echolocation where you're listening to the echo bounce off the walls and come back at you. Mm. You can touch these walls. They're, they're, some of them are billions of years old. It's, it's just incredible. And 
I love, I love adventure. Risk and uncertainty is part of the equation. Eric, you set out to be the first blind man to kayak the Grand Canyon, but someone beat you to it. Lonnie, <laughs> Lonnie Bedwell. Uh, and I, I thought it was so magnanimous. You then invited him to join you on this journey. Yeah, so I'm training and uh, <laughs> I'm going through these, you know, I, I actually took a foray, like a, 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 a trial run down the Grand Canyon in a, in a motorboat. And we would just drop into the big rapids just to see whether this was possible or not. And before I actually decided to kayak the whole thing. And I went through one rapid, granite, and it was violent. It was like going into the ring with a professional boxer, just getting hammered. And I got through that and I thought, okay, like Everest, there'll be a blind guy who climbs this someday. But granite, no blind person would ever do this. <laughs> no in one's going to be me years. to this, right. And of course, I was completely wrong. This guy, Lonnie Bedwell, an amazing kayaker, such a no-barrier story. He's a farmer from Indiana. He chainsaws trees on his property. He learned to kayak in the pond and his farm, just doing hundreds upon hundreds of rolls, Eskimo rolls, and then uh, was on the fast track. And he kayaked down to Diamond, which is uh, 225 miles of the Grand Canyon. And I just couldn't believe it. I was like, is this guy, maybe he can see a little bit or something. And then once I, you know, kind of, you know, cooler head took over and I thought, you know, this is a good thing for blindness. This is a good thing for no barriers because so many times people say, oh, that's just one, you know, phenom or something. He's like the super disabled person. No, it's, this is about all of us. And so I thought this guy, I bet he's a cool guy. So we got to know each other and I invited him on, on my, on my kayaking journey. And he was my partner in crime. We, we, I just loved relating to him. We had such a different style of kayaking. You know, he was fast and furious and I was slow and methodical and we're comparing notes every night and talking about, you know, uh, about all the things that we'd experienced and, and, you know, we could share things together. I, I, it, I, f- I didn't feel as alone. Yeah, I can imagine having had a very common experience each day as someone else. You've been using this term, No Barriers. It's the title of Eric Weinmayer's new book, A Blind Man's Journey to Kayak the Grand Canyon. Let's take a break, and I'd like to listen to some music as we do. Um, set this up for us. I understand it's a piece of music you listen to uh, to calm yourself a bit, It's by Mandy Harvey. The song is called Try. Say a few words before we go to break about it. Well, Mandy is one of our No Barriers ambassadors, and she's just a hero of mine. And she's a a musician who happens to be deaf. She's got to be like maybe one of a kind in the world. She sings by the voice that she hears in her head. She has perfect pitch. And it's just so, it's so crazy. It, it, It moves beyond logic. It's counterintuitive, which so much of the experience of this book was for me. And so I would listen to her music on my iPhone uh, on the Grand Canyon when I was really nervous or, you know, just having a rough time. I don't feel the way I used to The sky is gray much more than it is blue But I know one day More with Eric after a break on Colorado Public Radio. Oh, 
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and let's return to my conversation now with golden adventurer Eric Weinmayer. Sorry, Eric. (laughs) Uh, I like you're from Golden, but I like that you're also a golden adventurer. His new book is called No Barriers, A Blind Man's Journey to Kayak the Grand Canyon. Uh, And he did, in fact, kayak the Grand Canyon and uh, live to tell and write about it. So I want to um, bring people to a rapid in the Grand Canyon known as Lava Falls. Um, It has a reputation of being one of the biggest and toughest of the journey through the Grand Canyon, and uh, this is the sound of you going through lava. First charge. Nice hard forward stroke, Eric. This last charge. Hold that line, Eric. Charge, charge. Brace right, brace right. Hold that line, hold that line. Charge. charge. That period where you were, I I think, underwater, it it feels like an eternity to me, (laughs) not even having experienced yeah. yeah. Describe what's going on. So we're we're hearing the commands yeah. uh, that, that are telling you to go left or right, and then what? And by the way, my kayaking guides are vulnerable as well. This is a river that, you know, you're just riding this massive storm of energy, and you can get knocked over as a guide. You can go into a hole. You can get hurt yourself, and you're trying to navigate this blind guy down the down the river as well. So it's it's a it's a big. Uh, concept of teamwork, really uh-huh. putting it to the test. Lava is a very specific line. It's a map that you start in on the right and you angle along. There are these boils that want to flip you into this giant hole like a giant washing machine. You hit a V wave, which is these two massive waves coming together. You go into these giant waves called the Kahuna waves. You squeak by what's called cheese grater rock. It's, uh, it's Oh got, boy, cheese grater rock. Yeah, that that's sounds, self-explanatory. Yeah, and really... Vivid, yeah. And I went into the rapid, uh, and I we'd paddled 18 miles or something that day, and I was hot, and I was just nervous. You know, I'd been leading up to this moment for six years, and I think I just got overwhelmed, and the boil flipped me, and I was upside down going into lava, and I thought, you got to be kidding me. Like, this is, could not be happening. And I rolled up, and I got flipped a few more times. I was off ang- I was off angle. I was facing up river, which is when you not get knocked over, you roll up, and you're facing up river. You know, I don't even know that I'm trying to process that. And so I went through the Kahuna waves backwards. Harlan put his paddle up against one of these massive waves. This is one of your guides? Yeah, one of my guides. And it shattered his carbon fiber paddle in half. So he was upside down. Um, just, you know, it hammered his nose. The nose is pouring blood. He's trying to roll up and communicate with me. And, uh, and so whether the blind guy lives, I, you'll have to read the book. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, lava was definitely my nemesis. Well, here's what's remarkable. And I, this is the difference between like you and me. I would run screaming from that experience and you convince your team to try it again. Yeah. I mean, I think I wanted to, I'm like anyone else. I wanted to run screaming. Uh, in fact, I remember sitting on the side of the river because we camp right below lava, just debating this idea of, you know, I could just keep going down the river. and. 
you know, even somebody as experienced as Harlan gets spit out the bottom of lava, just nose bleeding and broken paddle. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I thought about these amazing people I'd met through my No Barriers experiences over the years, like Mandy being a perfect example, uh, like my kayaking guide, Rob Raker, who lives in Lakewood and uh, taught me how to kayak and was experiencing uh, stage four cancer as he was guiding me down the river. Oh, my. And I thought, you got to go back and do this thing again. And so we hiked up uh, on the side of the river and uh, we did lava again, uh, my second trip through lava. And uh, it was slightly better than the first run. <laughs> slightly better. Yeah. Okay. but It's not, never not... remarkably better. <laughs> it's not like the movies where you just crush it the second time. But it was slightly better. And uh, I did emerge at the other end uh, in my boat, which was uh, a very proud moment for our team. I understand that you were hesitant to write a book about this journey after it. Is that true that there was some reluctance? Yeah, because books are torture. Um, you know, you you know, I, when I committed to this book, like committing to the Grand Canyon, I realized, okay, this is a year of my life. I'm going to be in my dirty sweatpants, drinking coffee, uh, sitting in front of my computer, which talks to me. Uh, I can type on the keyboard and it talks back to me for a year, and I'm going to dive deep and. You know, what's interesting is that a rapid on the Grand Canyon, as, as I was writing, I thought about this. The rapids are created by this energy far beneath the surface, you know, boulders and drop-offs and sieves and all kinds of complexity down there. And that's exactly the way the brain is, you know. And so for me, No Barriers was diving deep down into the brain and trying to understand how people are motivated and how people get stuck on the sidelines when they're dreaming big, but they just can't get out of that stuck place. Mm. Um, and and how, what, what's the map that we build in our lives to break through? So it was a great exploration for me. But yeah, it definitely was a hard decision to go there, I guess. The new book is called No Barriers, A Blind Man's Journey to Kayak the Grand Canyon. And my guest is Eric Weinmayer of Golden the adventurer. Um, Eric, I'm glad you mentioned the brain because there's a technology you use, and I understand that you, you didn't use it for kayaking the Grand Canyon, but it's fascinating to me, and it's called Brainport. Yeah, and it's really part of the same no barriers message, and, and that is, you know, this idea of neuroplasticity, of, how, of the brain is, is changeable. You, you know, when one part gets damaged and you can't get through that part, you can find a new way. You can recircuit the brain. And this is actually a biological explanation and manifestation of that idea. Uh, and Brainport works as a technology. I've been a guinea pig for it. It's a camera I wear on my head. Okay. And it takes a digital image that gets translated through a microprocessor to a plate that I wear on my tongue that sends electrical impulses to my tongue. And so it essentially, uh, if I understand it, does a kind of visual representation yes. or literal representation of what the camera is seeing yeah. on, on your tongue, which is obviously a very sensitive place that can pick up cues. Yeah, and light gets changed to this tactile representation on my tongue, and then my brain does the rest. Uh, my brain um, then interprets this space around me. It's like feeling a two-dimensional image, and then your brain translates it back into a three-dimensional image. See, how that relates to neuroplasticity is that the brain was never meant to, ha to have the visual part of your brain, the part that usually uh, processes vision, 
be uh, have a new portal into the brain, which is a sense of touch. You know, your sense of touch and 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 your visual part of your brain were never meant to be connected. But it, it's the brain just takes over and does this, and it's amazing. The first time I used the device, somebody rolled a tennis ball across the table, and I reached out and I plucked this ball out of space, and I thought, "That's crazy." Uh, you know, you lose your hand to eye coordination as a blind person, uh, but Brainport enabled me to do that and more. And have your tongue become eyes in a way. Yeah. Uh, this book isn't just about kayaking. You weave a lot of personal and family history into it. The adoption, for instance, of your son. Uh, was was that a kind of adventure, too? For sure. In fact, you, you know, this message sort of weaves through your life, this, these threads, and my family has been a big part. Uh, of this message and maybe the most important part. And uh, my wife and I, eight years ago, um, wanted to bring uh, someone into our family. And Nepal was the place to start. And Nepal was experiencing a civil war at the time. And, you know, my wife's trying to get to all these embassy appointments and, you know, there's flaming bricks flying over our heads and uh, AK-47s pointed everywhere and burning tires and and I thought, I wish I was back on the river. <laughs> this is way. <laughs> it's this all, is way more complex. Than, it's all about perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we were able to bring Arjun home, and he's uh, in eighth grade now, and he's an amazing, great kid that uh, has blessed our family. And uh, and for me, that's that's really what No Bears is. You know, just trying to figure out how do you build that map as messy as it may be. Arjun. Arjun. What did he think of the first time he saw you? Uh, I. Uh, he was tiny when I first met him in this orphanage in Nepal, and he started playing with my long white cane, taking it apart and uh, putting it back together. And he loved my talking watch. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, we would bring him to our hotel, and he would play and uh, play baseball, and I'd carry him around on my shoulders. You know, I don't think he knew I was blind. He's just too young to really comprehend that, uh, this, this sort of strange long nose, you know. But he... Uh, he he's a big adventurer himself, and so uh, he made this voyage, this great uh, plane flight across the Pacific Ocean, and wound up in Colorado, which must have felt to him like being on a new planet. Mm. You have a talking watch. I do. I mean, I can imagine. I can see why he <laughs> thought that was cool. Yeah, he loved that. That broke the ice. That got a, <laughs> that got his first giggle. What's your next big adventure? Well, my next big adventure, obviously, they're physical adventures, um, yeah. uh, climbing beautiful big north rock faces and ice faces in the Alps and uh, going back to the Himalayas to climb peaks that probably no one's ever heard of. Um, but also my my big goal is to really grow this idea of no barriers. I think it's a, I think it's a great message and a great movement that we are trying to build. Uh, the fact that, you know, all of us have challenges, all of us are in a way tied together by this no barriers idea. Uh, whether our challenges are visible or invisible. And we all sort of sometimes, you know, as we go along that journey, we get knocked down, we get beaten, we get broken, we get derailed. And um, so No Bears is really about how do you figure out how to tap into what we have inside, what exists in there, and grow it and nurture it and use it instead of sort of blaming and reacting and, you know, all the things that we wind up doing that mm. are so destructive on the surface. Eric Weinmayer's new book is called No Barriers, A Blind Man's Journey to Kayak the Grand Canyon. He'll be at the Boulder Bookstore tomorrow night at 730.
There's this guy somewhere in Boulder County nicknamed Mr. Grass. And this is not a marijuana story. Mr. Grass has a webcam pointed at his lawn. 24 hours a day, it broadcasts on a site called Watching Grass Grow. And people around the world tune in, including Bradford Pearson, who profiled Mr. Grass in a recent issue of the Southwest Airlines magazine. And to Bradford, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. This website sounds like a bad joke. What, what did you experience the first time you tuned in? The first time, you know, there's a sort of overwhelming curiosity that comes with you that sort of is what I'm looking at actually reality. Um, and because the way that this video is set up and that it only takes, it basically takes a photo every two seconds, uh, it's a little choppy. So something might not happen for 10 or 12 seconds. Then all of a sudden there's a car in the background and that's what happened for me. And it was, you know, I sort of jumped out of my seat a little bit when I realized that I was actually watching a live video as opposed to just what may or may not have been a, uh, a picture on somebody's website. Uh, and the appearance of the site is also really jarring in terms of its appearance. It's just web 1.0, really old school HTML. So it really feels like you're back in old portal to 1997. <laughs> and when you're on the site, one, one kind of technology it does have is that it will tell you how many other people are looking in at that moment. Uh, which immediately builds a sense of community. Uh, I looked mon Monday morning and there were six people watching, I guess, <laughs> I guess six total. So me and five others. Right. Yeah. I think that that's sort of an interesting part of it too. You know, there'll be times where again, like, like you saw, there were maybe five or six people. There'd be times where there's 50 people and you look down and, and you can go through the comments and see if somebody just said, oh, you know, the milk just got dropped off or the mail just got dropped off. And, uh, of course, there's, there's trolls in the comments and people that are saying this is – it's hard to tell because sometimes people say this is the greatest website ever and you have no idea whether they're actually being uh, facetious <laughs> or whether they're being truthful. <laughs> but it does create this sort of community that you, you reaches across different kinds of people, reaches across countries, and it's literally just people staring at somebody's yard, whether they're in Bosnia or Japan or Texas or New York. And it's kind of peaceful in that way. I like this line from your story. It was like a real-time magic eye poster, only one where you <laughs> stare at it for 10 minutes before you realize it's not, in fact, even a magic eye poster. L let's talk about the psychology of this in a bit, but I'm, I'm desperate to know more about Mr. Grass, who started this website. Uh, you offered him a, a certain amount of anonymity, as we have. <laughs> Why did he start it? I, I mean, he just sort of started on a whim. Uh, Mr. Grass was this... Techie guy from the 80s and 90s who had lots of different pieces of his life that sort of added up to this. Um, he worked on a master's thesis about uh, about the internet back in 1991, I want to say, or 1992. And he just sort of, he's, in my eyes, he's just a bit of a tinkerer. So whether that's a website, whether that's house projects, his idea for this when he first put it up was he wanted something to be able to help monitor the drought. Um, when he was away uh -huh. so he could check in on this camera. And then eventually he started putting up these fantastic Halloween and Christmas displays. So then the camera would also be able to broadcast those. And then one year he just stopped taking the camera down between Halloween and Christmas and the grass cam was born. Honestly, you just saw a little bit of his driveway, maybe a lawnmower once in a while and some yard and street. And for some reason, people kept tuning in. You actually do name him. Um, it's just that you don't mm -hmm. give away the location of his home. So it's it's Alec Komarnitsky. And what struck you about him when you met him? 
I don't know. He, he's he's a funny guy. He talks fast. He he talks about lots of different things. We spent time on lots of different topics, whether it was the production of his peach trees in the backyard or whether it was about politics or whether it was about the news industry. We jumped over lots and lots of different topics in, in the days that I spent with him. And he was just he's – he's just a re- really interesting person and it would be hard to create this website if, if you weren't a little kooky. You learn that uh, this man, Mr. Grass, somewhere in Boulder County, has tried a few spinoffs, Concrete Cam, when he was pouring his new deck. And there was Watching Paint Dry. He actually tried that. (laughs) Right, yeah. He got some viewers during those, but they were such uh, singular opportunities that uh, (laughs) once the paint's dry, there's no real reason to keep a camera pointed towards a wall, uh, especially since it was indoors. I'm sure that his family at that point would have uh, probably drawn the line. You actually talked to a psychology professor to help figure out what, in some ways, became your own obsession with grass growing. Um, And the psychologist told you about a phrase, watchfulness, is that it? Yeah. So when I first started watching the site and and sort of getting involved and interested in it, I I didn't really understand why I was so into it. I I didn't – this isn't something that I would normally have spent time with, but as I go into in the story – I just found out that my wife was pregnant and we were about to have our first daughter. So there were all these new anxieties that were sort of growing into my life. Hmm. And so I wanted to try to find somebody that would help me try to break down why sort of report into my own brain. And uh, I found David Sader, who's, who's talked about watchfulness, which is the idea of just watching something with intention. So whether that means looking deeply into something or just allowing this image that's in front of you to sort of envelop you. This website is a really good example of you being able to interpret images as you see fit or how they fit into your psyche for maybe that day, that minute, or that year. Your story for Southwest Airlines magazine on Mr. Grass got passed around a lot on social media. I'm guessing it caused his page views to spike. What what have you heard from Mr. Grass just briefly? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he. Uh, every time I would check in right after the story, started getting passed around a bit. Uh, uh, you know, it would spike to 150, 250 people would be watching, huh. and it, it was interesting because the uh, people in the comments. It was fascinating because they were like, "There's usually only 12 of us. Why are there 250 people here now?" And uh, it almost seemed like they felt like they were being intruded on a little bit, <laughs> um, and, a, and a small part of me felt bad that I had taken this little pocket of the internet that a lot of people found solace in and injected 200 other people in. But like you said, you checked it this morning, there were six. So that's died down a little bit. Um, are, are you still tuning Mr. in? Oh, go ahead. I, I am. No, yeah, yeah, I am. I, I, don't, I don't watch it as much as I used to. But um, I'll still tune in and I'll mute the Rocky theme song when it comes on automatically because I always forget that it comes on automatically. So it'll blare across our office or at the house. <laughs> it's kind of a bad MIDI when you load it. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's it's um, Imagine the worst version of the Rocky theme song, and, and that's it. Bradford, thank you for being with us. Oh, I really appreciate the time. Thanks for reading. Bradford Pearson is a writer and editor at Southwest. The 
magazine published by Southwest Airlines, and he wrote about a man in Boulder County nicknamed Mr. Grass, whose website is called Watching Grass Grow. We have a link at cprnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters.